The story is drawn heavily from letters, diaries, and journals of participants, which explains the occasional use of such phrases as he thought, he imagined, she believed. Critics of narrative history understandably question an author's presumption to enter other people's minds. When these phrases are used in this work, it is because the people cited wrote that this is what they thought, imagined, or believed. The Great War, as it was initially known, was indeed global, involving 20 countries and five continents. Yet today, among most Americans, the war is only vaguely recalled, a misty promontory obscured by a war that preceded it and one that followed it, the Civil War and World War II. In surviving images, it has something to do with poppies, ghostly figures in gas masks, a rousing tune over there, President Wilson's 14 points, and a fading photograph in an album of an unbelievably young grandfather or great-grandfather wearing a doughboy's tin helmet and a collar that appears to be choking him. Yet, while partially hidden, the Great War still exercises a grip on the imagination. It is futile to argue that one conflict is more horrific than another. The imperative of war is to kill, and thus all wars are exercises in sanctioned murder. For the victim, it is small satisfaction whether he died gassed in the trenches, shot out of the sky in a World War II raid over Berlin, or run through by a Spartan sword at Thermopylae. Dead is dead. But the First World War's bleak distinction is that it took opposing armies to the outermost limits of man's inhumanity to man, as any honest account of Ypres, the Somme, or Verdun will attest. Of 55 million men mobilized worldwide, nearly 9 million were lost during this war, and far greater numbers were maimed, crippled, and disfigured for life. The historian Sir John Keegan concluded, the First World War was a tragic and unnecessary conflict. Unnecessary because the train of events that led to its outbreak might have been broken at any point during the five weeks of crisis that preceded the first clash of arms had prudence or common goodwill found a voice. But neither prudence nor goodwill did prevail. Obviously, once war began, the aggressor had to be driven from seized territory but at what a cost, while peace overtures that could have shortened the conflict withered. It has been argued that World War I was a victory of liberal democracy over military autocracy, a temporary victory at best when one considers the subsequent rise of Nazi Germany, Imperial Japan, and the Soviet Union. It has been suggested that the Allied triumph taught militarism a lesson of restraint, considering the much-magnified destruction of the Second World War, which in part grew out of the First, it seems that the lesson went unlearned. World War I did shift some lines on the map, toppled outworn dynasties, and carved out a few unstable and unviable states. It raised but then dashed hopes that it was a war to end all wars. All the scholars on earth, cannot explain the war much better, as it dragged on, than the British Tommy's ditty, We're here, because we're here, because we're here, because we're here. 
Or as another historian, A.J.P. Taylor, paraphrased it, they fought because they fought because they fought because they fought. Winston Churchill, serving as First Lord of the Admiralty, wrote as early as April 1915 that his nation's young men were engaged in the hardest, cruelest, and least rewarded of all the wars that men have fought. To those who study warfare as military science, the Great War did have meaning. It introduced the first battlefield use of radio and telephone communications, as well as most modern weapons, warplanes, tanks, ocean-going submarines, flamethrowers, and poison gas, if these be judged advances in human endeavor. But in the final judgment, it can be argued that the millions from all sides who died at the receiving end of such murderous ingenuity died in vain. It may be that the only value to mankind coming out of World War I was to provide the ultimate test of what human beings can endure under monstrously inhuman conditions and yet maintain their humanity. Even if the interplay of obstinacy and blindness made war inescapable, can we not question the way in which it was conducted in battles costing 100,000 or 200,000 or 300,000 casualties and fighting enduring more than 50 months? After more than 80 years, World War I can still arouse outrage over so much squandered life at generals who could feel every obligation that the profession of arms imposed except sufficient concern for the lives entrusted to them. For the layman, a baffling anomaly remains. One of the great poets of the war, Siegfried Sassoon, wrote of the doomed and haggard faces who fought the war. Yet these faces did not necessarily remember their ordeal with horror. Despite the stench of rotting corpses, the filth, the mud, the hunger, the cold, the rats, the ever-present prospect of death, the trenches appear to have exercised a near-mystical grip over men who lived and died in them. Never, many felt, had they experienced such intensity of emotion, never had comradeship, a sense of needing and being needed, struck so deeply and bound prior strangers so strongly in a blood brotherhood. Here was life lived at an adrenaline pitch. A young English officer, Guy Chapman, described the war as a mistress. Once you have lain in her arms, you can admit no other. The French theologian, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who served as a stretcher-bearer, found in battle a clarity, energy, and freedom that is to be found hardly anywhere else in ordinary life. An anonymous Canadian private put it more simply. The war, he said, had been the greatest adventure of my life. In trying to explain such sentiments to the layman, the veteran might well fall back on the cliché, you had to be there. Indeed, those who survived had undergone an etching of the soul that only they understood, and that spouses, parents, children, and other civilians could never fully grasp. It is also striking that beneath the different uniforms, languages, and professed reasons for going to war, the reactions of the soldiers whether toward their enemy, officers, comrades, or daily life, were not just similar, they were identical. 
One hopes that so cruel and pointless a conflict as World War I would at the very least have suggested lessons for avoiding a repetition. I thought, as a long-ago college student, that if every world leader was compelled to read Eric Maria Remarque's World War I masterpiece, All Quiet on the Western Front, there could be no more wars. We ultimately recognize, however, that those who instigate wars are not blind to their horrors, but undeterred by them. The lives lost are only the purchase price that a leader is willing to pay for objectives, noble or ignoble, especially since that leader will likely still be standing at the end. We conclude, finally, that while situations shift, human nature does not. The same impulses, gain, glory, fear, pride, honor, envy, retribution, coupled with short collective memories, will continue to propel mankind into a never-ending cycle of conflict, occasionally interrupted by peace. Joseph E. Persico, Albany, New York, July 19, 2004 November 11, 1918 The runner, shivering, his breath visible in the morning air, waited for the captain to acknowledge the message. The night had been bitter, the temperature hovering near freezing. The cold had stiffened the mud, caking uniforms and frosting the rim of the trench. Leaden skies threatened snow. A medic moved along the duckboards, handing out aspirin to sneezing, hacking men with heavy colds. They gripped ten mugs of coffee, grateful for the warmth, and eyed the runner, wondering what news he bore. The captain read the message twice. It must be a mistake. True, the night before, the U.S.